And that's the thing is there is a choice, Brian, but at the same time, there's a point in which you wake up to it, right? Like you can't make a choice if you don't know that there's a decision to be made. And that's how I lived for so long until I couldn't any longer, until the reality of me playing a victim became so strong that it was like, what am I doing? This isn't working. It's the worst mindset I can ever get into in my professional life and my personal life is I, I know. Because everything I know is just gonna block me off from learning something new. So I really try to stay in this mindset of, well, what can I find out today? And navigate that because I'm constantly waking up. If there's anyone out there that's, that's struggling with, with childhood trauma or past situations that you know, may not even have the wording to call it trauma. If there's situations from your past that are reoccurring thoughts that hinder your, your growth in your career, they hinder the decisions that you make. There's a block between your relationship with your partner. You find yourself not being able to get into healthy relationships. Like whatever it is, there is absolutely a way out. It's like, this happened for me. Like every single thing in my past, every dark spot in my past is the bright light of tomorrow for me. That's Mark Crandall, and I'm Brian Felchuk. The Do A Day Podcast. Will you hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times, overcome them, and have turned around to help others with what they've learned? I'm your host, Brian Felchuk. I know because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, Do A Day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it. Hey, day doers. I have one of the probably most impactful people in my life right now on as a guest today. And I, I'm so thankful to get to share this with you. Uh, this guy has become so close to me, so important in my life. Um, I am a little bit at a loss for words. And it's not that I don't have tons of words about him. It's just because there's so much to his story. There's so much to the process he's been through. This is a longer episode than usual, and we're still not anywhere near it. Like, there's so much more we got to get into. So consider this part one. This is Mark Crandall. Mark has become a really good friend. Mark has become someone I trust unbelievably. Um, Mark is, is someone who I stand in awe of on a regular basis. And that says a lot because I've met some pretty awe-inspiring people through this whole do-a-day process and, uh, and getting this podcast out. And I've gotten to share a lot of them with you and some more to come. But Mark, um, I say this in the interview, I feel like I've beaten the phrase to death, but I don't know how else to describe it. Mark sent me his autobiography months ago after having me on his podcast. Um, actually, I think it was before he had me on, but either way, uh, when, when I read it, I kept waiting for the main character to die. And obviously, it's an autobiography, and he sent it to me, so I know he doesn't die. But it's so hard to believe that. Even knowing reality, I still struggled to, to see it connected, like to see that he makes it through. It's that powerful. It's that difficult. It's that scary. Um, the turmoil is that strong. His lows are so unbelievably low. This is a guy who, well, I, I don't. I honestly don't want to give it all away because no one tells it like he tells it. Um, I really should just jump right into it. But look, it's a really tough story. There's a lot of pain and suffering in it um, that he endured, and there's quite a bit that he inflicted on others through his hurt 
and through his pain and his loss and confusion. And then you look at the man he is today. And I think that's probably the harder thing to believe than even the fact that he lived through what he lived through, that he is on the path he is today, that he is the man he is today, the husband, uh, the friend, the guide, the counselor. He is one of the kindest, most inspirational, positive people I think I've ever met. It's super introspective as well. It just does not... If you're ever wondering how you're going to get through what you're going through or how you're going to be better for it, come back to this story. Because Mark is about as much positive proof as you can get that you can survive anything and you can be much stronger for it. There's a process to get there, but he is proof that you can do it. So we're going to get into this. I'm going to let Mark tell his story. Um, Yeah, if I sound kind of not down, but deep with it, it's still affecting me. There are things he said, and this is a guy who I talk to every week or two. There's things that he said in the interview that are still affecting me in a good way, but they have really forced me to look within and think about how I'm living, what I'm doing, how I'm feeling about things differently. And like, that's all you can really ask for when you're hearing someone's story and trying to learn through what they've been through and take that into your own world is what can I think about? What am I doing differently? How can I reflect? How can I grow? So prepare to grow guys. Cause this is uh, this is some deep stuff. So I'm so honored to bring this interview with my friend, Mark Crandall to all of you. Hey guys, I'm sorry. I have to cut in before the interview, but I realized I never actually said like what Mark even does. Um, I was so caught up in, the interview itself and just reflecting on it. So really quickly, he's a transformational life and business coach, super sought after guy. Um, he's like, I'm just going to start going down the path of how great he is again. I need to not do that. Um, but he also does a lot of speaking events. Um, you know, He's written this memoir, Eulogy of Childhood Memories, which we talk about a ton. Um, but he is a licensed therapist and just puts out a ton of content and help to try to help people get through and face and deal with and process and grow from their traumas. And that's his full-time gig. That's what he does. He's trying to help people with the greatest things that the greatest difficulties that they've been through. So now we will get back and uh, jump into the episode with Mark Crandall. Thanks. Mr. Mark Crandall, thank you so much, man, for joining me today. This is, uh, this is something I've wanted to do for a while, so I'm psyched to have you here. It's great to be here, Brian. I'm, I had, you know, after you came on my podcast and we talked for nearly an hour and a half, <laughs> I'm excited to be here as well to continue this conversation. Yeah. And we, we didn't stop there. I mean, you and I have, have talked a ton of times. You're one of two people that I've had on that I've actually gotten to read your book before having you on. And, um, I'm a total broken record and I'm sure like I haven't recorded the intro to this yet, but I'm sure I will end up saying this there too. But this, the only way I can describe it, um, and I don't know if this sits well with you or not, but as I'm reading your autobiography and your your story, I keep, you know, if I didn't know it was you, I would expect that the main character in the story doesn't make it. But obviously you do, and you don't just make it, but you're in a completely, you're you're in a situation that I don't think anyone who knows the backstory would have assumed this is who you are, where you get to. And I don't think anyone who knows who you are today would necessarily assume any of what you've been through. And that, that blows me away, that connection. And that's why I'm like, you know, you got to be 
you got to be on this show. This story is, is way too much to keep from people. So it's a, I'm, I'm, I'm just like, I'm going to blabber about it. I'm just excited to have you on. Put it plain. Oh, I'm, I mean, I'm excited to be here as well. And, you know, for your listeners, I kind of want to give them some insight on the impact that you've had on my life and my career and which my career is, is carrying a message of, you know, triumphing over a hopeless state, right? Because you've, you know, you've read my book, Eulogy of Childhood Memories. And, you know, after I had you read my book, I realized that the character really should die in the end, right? Because I don't, I just kind of drop, I kind of just drop the readers off. It's like, I went through, essentially went through hell, lived a you know, live this really troubled life with a lot of trauma and abuse and then drug addiction and then incarceration and, you know, a lot of, a lot of suicide, um, ideations in, in my story. And then I did, you know, the end of the, the end of the first edition of eulogy of childhood memories is kind of like, and happily ever after. So it's kind of like one of those. And, you know, after you read it and you sent me that email a few months back, um, I decided that the book was incomplete and, and actually since that email, you know, but your listeners yeah. may not know, I've added, uh, 18,000 words to wow. the book and I'm getting ready to re-release it so that I can actually show people how I overcame, you know, the, the victim mentality that I spent, uh, uh, two, almost three decades living in. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the first version of the book. It's an incredible story. Um, you know, it leaves off after you've met your wife and it's like, you know, the, the future's wide open to you. But knowing what you've done since then, that's where I'm like, how did you get from just like walking off into the sunset into this? Because that to me, you know, that, that's that's my jam is, like, you know, the whole like how do we transform? And I know the transformation that took place and you were just starting there. So there's so much more than I wanted. 18,000 words. That's, that's more than 50% longer. Right. And that that's a significantly bigger book. Much yeah. More content. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, uh, I'm really excited. I actually haven't even opened the, the edits from Gary. Um, I have them and I'm, I'm just really excited. And, you know, the first book, you know, for those of you out there that have a that have a story, right? And I know, Brian, I know that you do as well. And for those of you out there that have a story, I guess the the piece that I could say in the release of my book was I was so terrified as to what the world was going to say. Yeah. So scared as to what my biological parents were going to say, what my adopted parents were going to say that it was just kind of like uh, when I got towards nearing the end of my story, I was just like, release it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I, mean? I was just so scared. Well, so, so look, every, everyone should read it. Um, and, and obviously, you know, wait for the second version and it may be out by the time this episode comes out, but I'll certainly, um, if it is, I'll put that in the show notes. And if it isn't, I'll change the show notes and, and let everyone know. But um all right, you got to tell us about the story, but I, I would strongly say as much as I know the story and as much as, you know, I, I've heard it, you still got to read it because that fear that you have, the rawness and honesty that you tell the story, and it's really hard not to find yourself right there. Like, I felt like I was in, you know, in the snow with you outside in New Hampshire or like in these houses or whatever it was. Um, 
you took us right there because you were just totally honest and open and raw and straight with exactly where you were at. Um, look, obviously, like I'm not you. I didn't go through it, so maybe I'm wrong about all that. But man, did I feel it reading that book? Like I was, I I told you, like I kept messaging you as I was reading. Like it's like I got another three chapters in. I'm just like I don't even know what to say. I was just so blown away, and I was reading it. I told you I was like reading it on a plane, and uh, I was a little bit nervous about people like seeing. There's lots of swears and tough situations. I was like, you know, what are, if someone sees this or they like, I had that fear, but I just I couldn't stop. Um, so powerful. So we we could just talk around it and how great it is. You got to take us through the story because what you live through just is mind boggling. Yeah, I, I'll get I'll get into that now. Um, and but. Before I do, I just want to state that when I was writing the book, and actually, Brian, I'm, I'm really, really contemplating getting the uh, taking the cuss words out of the book, um, out of the second edition of the book. I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm like, I'm very excited to sit down and spend, you know, spend a day or two reading through Gary's edits. I'm sure after hearing you talk about the work that he did for you, I'm sure he lit it up pretty good with some with some insightful feedback. But when I was writing it, there was a, I had a huge, there was a huge, I had a big mission, I guess, like a, a huge mission, which was to provide real insights to the reader as to the mindsets that I was navigating through, through all of these circumstances, right? Because I had read, you know, years and years ago, I read a book by a man named David Peltzer called A Child Called It, which, you know, is, is his his kind of path with adoption and group homes and that whole thing. And what I felt was lacking there was the mental insights, right? So yeah, the circumstances are outlined, but you know, as being a speaker in my, you know, when I hit the stage, like I'm really working to draw the readers in using emotion. Like I'm really trying to paint a picture for them so that they can get inside of my world so that they can feel what I'm feeling. And that's what I wanted to do in the book. Yeah. And I found it to be easy for me. And, you know, I've had, a, I've had a number of authors say, man, you need to keep writing. Like you write in such a way that just like paints a story for people. Totally. So yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll get into the story aspect of it. Um, so I, I, I always struggle with the starting point, but it really starts at, like my earliest memories. So my earliest memories, which are broken down in eulogy of childhood memories, um, my earliest memories are, are like traumatic. You know, they're, I have memories of the earliest memory that I have. My, I was probably two and a half. My sister was maybe close to five. And I woke up one morning and I was starving in an apartment. And I woke up and I went out to the living room and asked my sister where mom was. And she said, mom's over at the diner. And I remember like, although I didn't have the words at two and a half years old, I remember like just this darkness inside, like this feeling of, I look back on it. It's like this feeling of why does she get to eat and I don't get to eat, oh, you know? And it's like yeah. my whole story is painted with that. Why do you get to eat and I don't get to eat? Even to, you know, my 30s and then if I get into my scarcity mindset that I can fall into today, 
you know, it's like, why does he get to eat and I don't get to eat? Why does Brian get to speak there and I don't get to speak there? You know, and it goes back and it's just, you know, when you have 30 years of painting yourself into this, the world did me wrong. Yes. Why me? It's a lifelong journey to get out of that mindset. And so let's speed it up for the sake of the interview. Um, there was a lot of trauma. My mom uh, was addicted to narcotics. My my biological father left my mother. Um, as the story goes, he caught her cheating. He left. He took off. I don't know the story because, of course, I was a kid. So How old were you, you know, when he took off? Two and a half, three right. years so it's old. it's all around the same time, that first memory getting formed. Yeah, and and, and I know that a lot of people date that you're not supposed to have those early memories. But, you know, I have a newsflash for you. I have memories of watching Fraggle Rock in the living room of some weird trailer and turning around when the commercial break came on and watching, you know, and I'm watching my biological mother and some random guy sniff cocaine off a chest for usually. Although I didn't know what they were doing at the time. Like, that's what I saw. Yeah. You know, and so... You know, I have other memories of like, and I didn't know at the time. So I remember we, we spontaneously took off to New York and I was probably around three at this point. My biological mom took me and I think it was a Buick. I don't know the car, but I remember what it looked like inside. And she took me to New York and I didn't know what was going on. I thought yeah. we were just going on a trip. And we stayed in New York and we stayed at um, this woman's house who I don't even know to this day. And I, But I remember I was sitting at, eating a bowl of Fruity Pebbles and I remember like it was yesterday because I yeah. love Fruity Pebbles. So like right? all these little points of it, you, you have such memories, like such anchors for the thoughts. Yeah, and most, I mean, most people that have trauma can graphically remember the memories. But I'm sitting there at the table and I'm eating my Fruity Pebbles and I remember the phone rang. And for those those of you who are not I feel old, man. Like this is when the phones hung on the wall and they rang really loud and somebody yeah. had to walk over to it and pick it up. You didn't have it in your pocket. And so the phone rang and the woman whose house it was answered the phone. It was from my mom. She called my mom over. My mom got on the phone. And then I just remember my mom hanging up the phone and running out of the house screaming. So I had no idea what was going on at the time there. But now after piecing it all together, and getting the story from everyone. I I know that it was because my mom like ran from DCYF, which is the, de the Department of Youth and Families um, that were coming. They wanted me like mm -hmm. my mom had had a neglect case on her for my sister and I, um, my sister who had cerebral palsy has cerebral palsy, almost drowned in a bathtub at my grandmother's house under my my mom's watch. Um, and then when they came to investigate, there was like, we had clothes that didn't fit. We had wounds all over us. Like I had cigarette burns on my body, according to my, my adopted parents. And, um, so I just remember her running out of the house. And then the next memories that I have are like the day that we showed up at the foster home that I ended up becoming adopted by these two lovely human beings, Orly and Cliff. And, um, I know that like from hearing the stories, like I had a bunch of to toys that were broken and, and a whole bunch of clothes that didn't fit. And I didn't know, like when you're a child, you don't know what's going on. Yeah. You know, I had no idea. Like I literally, I spent the next probably 15 years thinking something was wrong with me. 
like I was broken. Like there was like, why does a child get, why does a child get like dropped off at strangers houses and like, and then later on become adopted by these strangers? Like it just, it, it baffled me as a kid, but I didn't have the words. And even though I had been attending therapy for just a, a ton of years, like I'd been in therapy since I was probably four, um, I had no clue what was going on. And so as a result of that, my adopted parents, Orly and Cliff, ended up like reaping the wrath of just all of my anger, all of my frustration, all of my confusion. And I mean, at an early age, like I was assaulting kids in second grade. Um, the first time I got suspended from school was in second grade. You know, one of the, the most horrific memories I have um, and, and when you feel like you're separated from everyone else and you're different from everyone else, like this is going to make, this is going to be much more impactful. But like, I remember being in, in second grade and, uh, we had our, we had, we always had to read before we got nap time, which was my favorite time. Uh, I love nap time. I still to this day love nap time, but we had to read. And I remember green eggs and ham got to me and I couldn't, I couldn't make out what was on the pages i couldn't read oh. and all the kids in class laughed at me and you know i you know if you read my story you'll know but i like picked up a desk and launched it and you know got thrown out of school because that's how i handled anything that made me feel uncomfortable yeah is i just became aggressive and acted out and pushed them away and because no one was going to hurt me like my mom hurt me and I lived that way for years and years. How conscious were you of that last phrase you just used? No one was going to hurt you like your mother hurt you. Was this an active thing that you were aware of? Or was this, you just know now that's what was operating under the surface? Yeah, I know now. And, and you know, your listeners probably don't know, but I've been practicing therapy and, and, and do coaching now with clients. I've been doing that for about 11 years. So I've been studying the mind and engaged in spiritual practices and introspective work and have done a ton of workshops. And so, no, this is like what's been uncovered. Yeah. But at the time, it just looked like, man, I just wanted my mom. Like I just wanted my mom. That's what I think that's what I'm trying to get at is what were your feelings towards your mother in those moments? Like, was my, she on your mind? My feelings at the time. Yeah, she was always on my mind. And I remember, like, she was on my mind. My biological father was on my mind. Like, I just wanted to, I, I really just wanted to know, like, why I wasn't like the other kids, um, why the other kids had these families, and yet I had the second family. Mm. Um, and I have, there's another situation that I outline in in my book, and that is, you know, it's Christmas Eve and, um, bio mom says she's coming again, which my sister and I had become really accustomed to like, she's coming and then she doesn't come. Doesn't and I remember, I remember we like we, every time we would see lights, like light up the tree line of our backyard. Um, my sister and I would run to the sliding door and see if she was pulling in the driveway and she never came. Yeah. And it just, you know, that's kind of, kind of what was there for me and what became ingrained in me. And, and you see, as I navigate my relationships in life, like I just sabotage them because she never came. Right. So all of this time I'm like, either I spend all of my energy in relationships waiting for somebody to leave or pushing them out before they get a chance to leave. Yeah. 
And I don't know what's going on as a kid or as a teenager or even into my mid twenties. I had no clue what was ticking behind the scenes, but you know, I just tried to fill this hole inside as, as much as I could. And, you know, this gets to the point of the story where, you know, I found narcotics and alcohol and I was 11 years old. My dad, my adoptive father gave me a sip of his Michelob light and I didn't catch a buzz. It wasn't anything. I don't know if he gave me a sip or I took it. I don't want to miss talk. I probably just, I probably just took it off the table, but I remember watching them at 11 years old and I'm watching them and I'm, and I'm visualizing them at the table and they're, they're all happy. And I'm like, man, I want to be happy. What are they doing? Oh, they're drinking this thing, man. If I drink that thing, maybe I'll be happy, but it didn't work. And it took a couple more years. And I want to share this cause I don't, I don't, I don't haven't heard it talked about that often, Brian. And so what I, I forget the exact circumstances, I outline it as best I can in my book, but for whatever reason, I had done something wrong, which was very common. Like, I think I'd punched a hole in the drywall at my, you know, my adopted mother's uh, trailer where I, where I grew up. I punched a hole. I got angry. I had frequent anger outbursts. I would throw stuff and, you know, assault people. And you lit fires too, right? Yeah. I love, yeah. I, yeah, I set a lot of fires. Um, actually, yeah, we'll, I mean, we'll get into that. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That actually led me to my first group home. Um, and so I like punched a hole in the drywall and every, I was a fat kid. Like I just love sweets. Sweets did something to me, right? They made, they just did something to me. They filled the hole. And so whether it was me opening, you know, those silver cans that you get those butter sugar cookies in at Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Like the circ. So I would see those wrapped under the Christmas tree and I would unwrap them and I would eat them all. And I would throw the tin in the woods to hide the evidence. Right. Yeah. And like, I did stuff like that. As yeah. A child. I hear that. Yeah. So, but they're so good. I mean, once you, it's like Pringles, once you and pop, all, you can't stop. They all taste the same and you tell yeah. yourself, oh, that shape's going to be the one that's like, looks like a pretzel or the round one or whatever. They're all yeah. the same. They all taste the but same. But you eat them. Yeah. yeah. And the end, the end result was always shame for me. Yeah. But, and those tins are hard to hide. It's not yeah. like a, you know, package you can flatten down. Yeah. So I, I, yeah. Anyways, I punched a hole in the drywall and we were all, we, every Sunday, my grandfather would take us out to uh, get ice cream Sundays. And this is biological or your adopted, adopted, adopted. Yeah. Okay. My adopted, my adopted grandfather. And he would bring us out to get ice cream Sundays. And, um, I was told I couldn't go cause I punched a hole in the drywall. And I remember this is the first moment and I'm sharing this cause I don't hear it talked about a lot. Um, even as a therapist, I don't hear it talked about a lot and I'm, and I remember they all left the house. They left me there. I'm probably nine or nine to 11 years old. And I remember laying on my bed and I'm crying because I don't get my ice cream. And I started having thoughts of what would the world be like without me? Like no one, no one loves you. Like these were my thoughts. This isn't the language that I'm adding to it now. Like these were my thoughts. And looking at it now, I know that these are not common thoughts for you know, a, a pre-teenager to be having at such a young age, but I had them and I didn't share them with anyone. And I was seeing a therapist at the time and I didn't share them. Um, but yeah, right around that time in my life, um, I, I, I started to act out even more. I, I really, I started to set fires. I was killing animals. I was torturing, um, our family pets. And I know, you know, for you listeners like the 
I have a lot of shame still associated with some of the things that I did. Um, you know, it's not, it's not, I actually have a, uh, I, one of my, one of my wife and I's cats, Bella is an amends that I've made to cats. I've never harmed her. Um, anytime she wants to cuddle, she cuddles with me. My door to my office is closed right now, so she won't jump in my lap, but I call her the codependent cat because <laughs> she's just, she's always on me, but it escalated and I started setting fires. And at that point I got introduced to marijuana and started smoking weed. And, um, that turned into a daily, a daily affair. And I started, you know, I was already stealing at a, in a small amount, whether it was a Ninja turtle or what it was from my classmates, but it escalated quickly. I started stealing from stores. I started breaking into my adopted mother's bedroom and stealing change and, um, and setting fires And my adopted grandmother caught um, she like caught me setting a fire. I lit, like, I thought it would be a good idea to, you know, those round sleds, yeah, the round saucer sleds. Yeah, yeah. I had a plastic, one of those. I thought it was going to be a great idea to fill that with accelerant and light it on fire. It turned into like a, a bomb. My grandmother saw it. She came over, found like the smoking plastic sw- sled in the woods. She called the police. I had no idea at the time that my adopt both of my adopted parents, even though they were separated at the time, which is more of a longer story. I feel like I could talk for three hours about my story, but they were separated at the time. Um, they had already been talking to they had already been talking to my therapist, uh, this man Stephen Atkins, about a chins petition. I had no idea what a chins petition was or any of that. But what it is, I know now being a professional and working in the field and doing a bunch of research about my past, that it's a, it it stands for child in need of services. And so essentially what your parents do, and if there's any of you out there and you're, you have, you're listening and you have a, you know, a child that is struggling the ways that I do, like this is, this is available for you as well. So basically what it is, is um, you fill, you fill this form out and you basically hand custody of your child to the state, but not in like this morbid take my child. It's you're asking the state to provide you services that you can't afford, right? So that's what my adopted parents were doing. I was out of control. Like I was being suspended every other day, not going to class, stealing, lying, you know, smoking weed, drinking, fighting, setting fires. Like I literally at the age of nine years old had all the traits of a serial killer. Yeah. I mean, Mark, when, when you're at that point in the book and, um, and obviously like to hear it in your words adds another power to like, uh, out loud to read your words, there, there's power to that, but to hear your voice as you tell it, it gets even stronger. But this is the first point in your story where I'm like, how, like, how do you ever come out of this path you're on? Cause I don't give you more than like six months you know, like you, the fact that you didn't go to juvie is mind boggling. And I know, you know, the, the story continues, but it's, uh, this is, you're, you're, you're narrowing it down for the sake of time today, but I can't stress to people just how serious and severe the, the scope of the issues are here and how deep the trauma is and the effect that it's having on you. Yeah, absolutely. And I did, I did go to a a modified juvie. I mean, I went to, after they filed the chins petition on me, I went to my first group group home, which was referred to as gladiator school. 
when I got there. And so kids were getting restrained every day and, um, everyone was in a relationship, which were super healthy relationships. You know, you think about it, you know, (laughs) so you were what, like nine or 10 years old when you got in there? Yeah. 11, 11, 11, yeah. 11. I think I turned 12 in there. And then I went from there to two other group homes, um, all in New Hampshire. And when I got out like two and a half years later, like the state, it's, it's a funny, it's kind of a funny story. I actually, my mom got me pulled out of this group home in Newport, not New Hampshire, which I'm going to remain, it's going to remain nameless. Yeah. Uh, and I, my mom stated to the judge when we went to court that I, she believed that I was getting worse. Wow. And so my mom pulled me out and brought me home. And in my mind, I'm like rehabilitated because I just did two and a half years in these group homes, little did I know that I had the inner workings of what it looks like to, um, to be institutionalized. Mm. I had no idea. And so anyways, my mom bought me these fancy clothes and you know, I went, I was heading off to high school cause all of my peers were in high school now. I'm like 15 and a half, I think. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Going in, going into high school and now I had an education on what, what was really going to make me feel better. Cause everyone in the group homes that, that I attended, they were all doing narcotics. You know, a lot of them were doing much more than just smoking weed. So now I knew about all these things and I was on a mission to go back to school to educate all my peers about all these things. And, you know, I was going to be a good kid and I was going to do get good grades. And this is what was going on in my head. I'm going to be a good kid and I'm going to get good grades. I'm wearing prep clothes now. Like I, my mom bought me some polo shirts and I had khaki pants and now I'm fitting in with the athletes and, um, and inside I'm just still dying. And I remember the mission that I had the first day that I went to school was how, where can I get a bag of weed? Cause my mom had given me some money and, um, and I got one and I mean, it was off my, my high school years. I'm not sure how I got a passing grade. Um, I was suspended a bunch. I skipped a bunch. I, I mean, they could have filed truancy charges on me for the amount of days that I skipped and the amount of classes that I skipped. But at this point, as you know, in my story, I'm literally just on a mission to shut my mind down. Yeah. Like, I just want my mind to stop. And I don't know that that's what I'm doing. I think I'm just having fun and partying and hanging out with the other kids. But every day that I wake up, I'm, I'm, I'm on a quest to quiet the voices in my mind, which was absolute chaos. Like, I hated myself. And is that, is that purely through substance? Or are you still having these moments where you're like, what if I just wasn't here anymore? Oh, I'm still, yeah. I mean, the suicidal ideation, like those thoughts and continues. Yeah, it continues. Um, I don't identify it and, and I know, I know enough to not share that with my therapist, Sure, you know, from being, you know, when you, when you start to frequent group homes as an adolescent, you pick up on a lot of life skills that actually translate over. Um, you know, I don't want to talk about that now, but you know, a lot of my past has, has translated into me being really good at business. Sure. And I can, I can read individuals like, you know, you know, like a third grade novel. Like I'm, I'm really good at seeking, seeing intentions and, and seeing who somebody is at face value. Yeah. Well, there's no teacher like survival. And that's literally, that's the class you're in is everything is about survival. So you're going to learn those skills because you have to, if you don't learn them, you're done. 
Totally. Totally. And uh, it's been a hindrance and, and an asset. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to speed it up, like I said, because I want to get into the good stuff. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I was drinking and doing drugs. I, you know, uh, at 18 was the first time I tried heroin. And, and for those of you who um, don't think that marijuana is a gateway drug for whatever reason, I believe that it is. But at the same time, I have a different reason why I believe it is. Um, I believe marijuana is a gateway drug because you have to go to the black market to obtain it. And that's where I got introduced to heroin. Yeah. So that's a longer story and a debate that I maybe don't want to get. I don't know what your views are on that, Brian. So I, I don't mean, want to. Look, we, we don't need to go down the rabbit hole. But yeah, there's a, be, a debate from the chemical side of it and the, the, you know, what's going on in your body, the biological side. That's fine. Science can figure that one out. I'm not. I'm not in a position to take, you know, to make this statement there one way or the other, but you're, you're absolutely right. Calling out from a behavioral and, uh, an access and exposure standpoint is anytime you do stuff that exposes you to other options that are on that spectrum, whether that particular thing hooks you on the others or not, you now are in a world that you wouldn't have been a part of before. And, you know, you can get, you can get into things that you weren't going to get into if not for that thing. So I mean, that's not just about drugs. It's kind of like anything. I mean, totally different world, but on the fitness side is like I started in on running and the more I got into it, the more I got introduced to like other similar kind of, um, you know, intense endurance sports and triathlon, you know, like there's quote unquote gateway drugs all over the place, but it may not have anything to do with the biology and that it doesn't have to, it can just be about introduction and exposure and, you know, you have choice in how how much you go through that, but you're introduced to things you never would have seen otherwise. So I, I think we can qualify it as, as a gateway drug, whether it technically gets to be called that or not. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened to me. I, I called my weed dealer up and asked him, eh, you know, whatever exchange went on on the phone, hey, do you have this stuff? I'm coming over. And he said, no, I don't, but I have something better. And so, of course, and of course I go over I get introduced to heroin and um, my life just, if you don't think my life unfolded, my life completely just unfolded. But from, from an internal dialogue perspective, I felt like I had arrived. Mm. So for those of you who don't know and you're like, oh my God, like why is this person doing this? Or lock all the junkies up or like whatever. Like I, I can't even explain to you the internal turmoil that was going on with me and the relief that I found the first time that I did heroin, it was like the most euphoric freeing, like life was going to be okay. Everything like the gates were going to open up and white doves were going to fly out. Like it was that powerful. You never had anything like that your whole life. No. And so, as you can imagine, from an addiction standpoint, um, that intensified. I became homeless. My mom threw me out. Um, I stole from her. My little brother caught me. I assaulted him. She called the cops, threw me out, and 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 I was homeless for almost two years. And then got arrested for um, some criminal offenses that I had engaged in and went you- to count. Mark, you weren't just homeless, though. You were homeless and you were on the run. And this was like, you know, one of the most gripping part of the books and and where I was like, the end is going to hit any page now is you were like jumping from place to place, person to person. Who are you using? 
who are you hiding from? The cops were kind of on your trail much of the time. It was a very, like, the tension that I felt in that whole period, just as a reader, I can't imagine living it, but it wasn't as simple as just, like, I didn't have a place to sleep, and I was trying to score the next hit. You know, there, there's, there, there's, uh, this is an incredibly heated, difficult, um, high tension period. And, and if, if that, you know, pain's driving you to use, this is only going to make it worse. Totally. Yeah. There was, uh, it's actually one of the things that I'm just so grateful for today. Like I haven't had a warrant out for my arrest in, in probably 14 years. Like, and for those people, like, like a lot of people in society are like, well, good for you, but yeah, you're not supposed to, but, but that wasn't, that wasn't the path you were on. You like the path you were on says you either should be in prison or constantly have a warrant out for your arrest, or you have a reason why there should be one if there isn't yet. So like, that's, that's the part that blows me away is this complete flip. Like you, you've transformed in a way that I'm not sure I've met anyone who's had as hard of a transformation or as complete of a transformation. Yeah. And, and, and I'm going to, I'll speed it up a little more. So I, yeah, I did a, I did a year in County jail, um, had no intentions of using, like really wanted to get my life on track. Didn't know what that entailed. I had read, uh, like I said, David Peltzer's. I actually read his the series of books that he did. So I read uh, uh, A Child Called It, and then went through all of his books to The Lost Boy, um, and he he wrote a few more. And so I read those when I was in there, and, and I was eighteen, maybe nineteen years old, and I'm thirty five now, just to give you some reference. And uh, in that moment, I knew that I was going to be an author, and I was going to be a speaker, and I was going to transform lives. Wow. Um, now it didn't, the seed didn't like the seed was planted, but that thing didn't sprout for years, but, but it was there. And I was like, man, his story's powerful, but mine's much more powerful. Right. And it was like, I could, I could touch lives at a depth that he can't. Yeah. And I have a message and and a story to share. And yeah, anyways, I didn't do anything with it at the time. It escalated. I, I got out of doing a year in County jail um, back living with my mom, uh, my adopted mother and, and my stepfather and do it. Like I got a job washing dishes and I was doing okay for a little bit. And then what happened to me was the internal, the, the, the voices got louder and louder. And I'm not talking like voices, like a schizophrenia standpoint. I'm talking like the self-hatred, the, why did you do that? They left you, you know, all of that stuff just got louder. internal monologue, inner voice. Yeah, it got louder and louder and louder. And I remember clearly one day I was at the dishwashing job and, you know, I was attending, you know, recovery meetings at the time and I just became so angry. Uh, Like I had threatened physical harm on the owner of the restaurant I was working at, like really graphic physical harm. and. And I just threw my hands up and said, I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting high tonight. And just so happened that somebody on the job had, you know, had some narcotics on them and, and I got relief and it started, it started another trip and, um, you know, like a lot more criminal activity, a lot more on the run, running from law enforcement is a common thread in my story. And I don't mean like running on the highway, like the OJ reels that you've seen on TV. I mean, like foot chases, like I used to, 
you know, gun strong. Like, um, I wasn't liked by the police department and rightfully so I was a nuisance to society and a danger to society. And, and I was scared, which makes it even, even more terrifying for society. So I did that for, I don't know, probably about a year. And, uh, my, you know, my, my probation officer arrested me again for some more crimes and, and I went to prison and, and that's, um, you know, for those of you who don't think incarceration works, um, I'm a huge advocate for the New Hampshire state prison. I really am. I don't want to tear up on your podcast, but I may, um, I was rehabilitated. I don't know how to say it. And it's not, it's not the rehabilitation that you're, you're thinking about. Cause I stayed under the influence the entire time that I was in prison. Um, but had they not forced me to get my GED when I was in there, I guarantee you I would have stayed in that cycle upon leaving. Like they forced me to get my GED to, to parole to this treatment center that I was going to. And, and when I got out of prison on August 23rd, 2007, it was the most terrifying moment of my life. Mm. I'd been sober for two days. And cause I figured if I was going to go to this year long treatment center, like I really needed to give it a go. Right. Like, yeah. and I couldn't stay sober in prison. And I'm like, how am I going to stay sober in this rehab? Like I'm about to go back out on the streets. I've robbed so many people. There's a lot of people that want to cause me harm. Do I still have any warrants? Like, what are these people going to think? What are those people going to do? Am I still going to get shot by that man that threatened me? Like I had all this stuff going on. And, and I remember the gates opened. And the guards always crack a joke when you get when you get out. Um, and and this guard this guard said, uh, "Crandall, see you soon." And I just remember, like all the other times that I'd been released from you know institutions, I like made jokes at the end. But I just remember looking around at him, and and I turned around and I said, "Man, if there's a god out there, if there's anything out there, please don't let me come back." Like, I don't want to come back. Yeah. And, and it was kind of loaded when I said it, right? Because it, well, I wasn't so, like, hopeful and spiritual, like, oh, this, I'm going to become enlightened. It was like, if, if, if there's not another way, please take me off this earth. Yeah. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And that's what I, you know, when I walked and I met my mom and gave her a hug and my stepdad drove her up and I jumped in the truck and, and we headed for a really long ride to this year-long treatment center. Um, that the courts demanded me to stay at, you know, it was in my court order. And I'm so thankful for that because just the whole process, like I have so much gratitude for it. Like I know a lot of people, you know, have the mindset of I've worked with a lot of convicts that have still have the mindset of like society did me wrong. And like, really, you can't kick doors in. (laughs) Like you can't do that. Um, and so Man, I would love to get on that topic, but that's a, another topic. I've, that's what we have to have I've done, Yeah, I've done so many things that society w- would state that convicted felons can't do. Uh, yeah. I was employed by the state of New Hampshire, um, like just so many things. So anyways, I went to treatment. I got introduced to um, the 12 steps and uh, meditation and church and um you know, I, I was given by my first mentor um, a book by the Dalai Lama, and 
in another book by Thich Nhat Hanh. And, and I just started my quest, man. And, you know, like one of the third or fourth books that I got was uh, Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. And I just began my quest, you know, in, in 2007, I just started to become a seeker. And what I found, Brian, which I know you found as well, is like what I found was the more energy that I put into seeking, the more internal relief I found. And so I've just been on a quest for the past 11 years to do more. And as a result, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a licensed therapist here in Texas. And um, as you know, I've written a book, I host a podcast, I, I do a lot of things in the realm of transformation to, to, you know, to really get a message out there to wake up anyone that's wondering if, if there's another way, like, that's my calling in life. Like, this isn't, you know, I talk to you about this all the time, like, you know, speaking and writing and creating content and coaching people is not a career for me. Like, this is my calling in life. This is what I've been called to do. I was called to do it at 18 the first time I was in county jail. Yeah. So I don't take it lightly. Yeah. This isn't the job you do in your life. This is your life. Yeah. There's no, there's no separation of it. And, and that's, you know, get, having gotten to know you, it's so blatantly clear. Everything you've got in you goes into everything you do. And that, that's where I feel like you have such power. Um, and that's when I, you know, finishing the book, I was like, where's the rest of it? Cause that, you know, as, as gripping as the story was, it's the next chapter. It's the stuff you've been adding. That to me is where the really like, you know, blow you away kind of stuff comes from. Cause like you said, you work for the state. Well, technically they shouldn't have been able to employ you. You know, you've helped all these people who have gone through these things. You're inspiring people. You're a really good person. You're committed to so many better things. None of that's in the, the backstory. Like none of that should be possible. And so that flip, that ability that you've had to do it is, uh, that's just so profound, man. Do I have time to get to drop a little bit of that? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I don't have a hard stop, but I know you're, you're fully booked up always. So the time is, is your call, oh, but I'll give you're you busy. whatever you want. Cause this you're, is, and, and we'll, we'll have you back on. Cause there's so much to this. You're busier than I am. Well, but no, I'm good, and I, like, I'm, and I'm trying not now. to interrupt you and add to it, but like, cause I want you to get out as much as you can, but it's so good. There's so much here. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I guess I'll just get into the good stuff since you don't have a hard stop and you can edit and do and do whatever you I'm do to anything, man, this is all flowing. So you just yeah. go. Um, so in, like I said, in, in 2007, I entered the, the realm of transformation, which is what I call the life that I live today. Like I just entered this place of more, right? Like I wanted, I want to change more. And I hate the word self-help. Um, I, I just hate that category because I don't believe that anyone needs help. I believe that individuals just need empowering. I don't, to say that I need help means that I'm helpless. And I don't believe that. I believe that individuals just need empowering. They just need, they just need some words. They just need to hear your story. They just need, maybe need a little guidance. Like, and, and, and so I just started to seek individuals and to seek books and to seek workshops and, you know, the weirder it was, the more that, you know, as I've, as I've 
gone on this journey, the weirder it is and the more that I believe society frowns on it, the more interested I am in, in finding out what's behind it. And so what I've found is that it's not necessarily this spiritual path, right? As I used to think it was, I used to think it was like just me floating in the clouds and you know, and you think of the story of the Buddha or you think of the story of Christ or any of the major religious figures, if you look at the backstory of how they gained access to enlightenment or what we you know, whatever it is that they, their arrival point in spirituality, there is a lot of pain and introspection. Always. And so that is what I've just unfolded. And just layer after layer. I mean, I've done EMDR. I've done week long silent meditation retreats. I've done uh, I've done just countless workshops that I won't name in your in on your podcast because I don't want to drop plugs for them. Um, but just countless workshops. Of, it's you know, it's the idea of peeling the onion, right? There's so many layers. And the more I peel back, I've been peeling back for 11 years, the more I find. And so the greatest thing that I found that I uncovered was this. I'm about to drop it on you guys. This is, this is what's going into the, the re-release of Eulogy of Childhood Memories. I realized that I had, been spent, I had spent my entire life playing the victim. And I want to share with you guys because you don't, probably have never heard me before. Um, maybe some of you have. There's a, there's a difference between being a victim, which I am, and maybe you are, a victim of circumstances, a victim of trauma, you know, a victim, like a victim, like you were a victim. Something happened to you that more than likely probably shouldn't have happened to you. And playing a victim. So I am a victim. But I couldn't, I couldn't differentiate the, the difference between playing a victim and like being a victim and playing one. So what I found out was I had spent my entire life up until this point that I had this realization blaming all future outcomes and all of my present reactions to life off of my past. That makes sense, Brian. I want to make sure that they're. Of course it does. I mean, to me that you you know like that's right up my alley um that's such a a key part of the stuff that i talk about as well and the the word that's coming to my mark the difference between being and playing is choose or choice and it doesn't like this is where people get really hurt by that word it doesn't mean it's easy you know you weren't you weren't actively like oh you know what today i'm gonna i'm gonna act like a victim it's, you know, you weren't consciously making that choice, but yet you couldn't choose whether you were a victim. That happened. You couldn't choose whether you experienced that trauma or not. That was done to you. And that really did happen. The choice comes in how you let it impact your life. And that could be incredibly hard to choose the right path, but it is still within your power. And you're, you're beyond living proof of that because the first part of your life you were playing the victim and and everything that came along with that and punishing the world for what you had experienced. And you clearly, even though it seemed impossible, you clearly are not playing the victim today. You're doing quite the opposite. 
So like to me, you're the most living proof that it really is a choice no matter how hard it is. And you had like, you know, chemistry and biology in, in the narcotics working completely against you making that choice, but you did it. Yeah. And after you, and, and I want to circle back around to that email that Brian wrote me, um, which he is so humble. He's like, well, what email? I don't even remember that. I remember uh, the email. I just, um, it struck me. It just, it, it, it punched me right in the chest. And, and the reason why it did, because I felt that my, the, you know, eulogy of childhood memories was, was not complete. And so it is complete this time when it, when it, gets re-released and it may be re-released um by the time this podcast drops is the ending of the book now is me actually walking the reader through step by step exercise by exercise through the process of overcoming this happened to me and getting them to step on the shore of this happened for me yeah so there's a big difference between being a victim and playing one. And I feel as if, not even I feel, my mission in life is to get as many people on the shore of this happened for me as I possibly can because I spent so many years living. And, and that's the thing is there is a choice, Brian, but at the same time, there's a point in which you wake up to it, right? Like you can't make a choice if you don't know that there's a decision to be made. For sure. And that's how I lived for so long until I couldn't any longer, until the reality of me playing a victim became so strong that it was like, what am I doing? This isn't working. And in that moment, right? So the, the worst place that I can ever get into in my professional, the mindset, worst mindset I can ever get into in my professional life, in my personal life, in my relationship with my wife is I, I know. Because everything I know is just going to block me off from learning something new. So I really try to stay in this mindset of, well, what can I find out today? What can I find out today? And navigate that because I'm constantly waking up. So if there's any, I, I, the, I guess the reason for me to be on this podcast today is if there's anyone out there that's, that's struggling with, with childhood trauma um, or past situations that you don't, may not even have the wording to call it trauma. If there's situations from your past that, that, that are reoccurring thoughts that hinder your, your growth in your career. They hinder the decisions that you make. They, there's, there's a block between your relationship with your, with your partner. You can't get into a healthy, like you find yourself not being able to get into healthy relationships. Like whatever it is, there is absolutely a way out. And so the email, you can thank the email that Brian's he's going to say something now, but you can thank Brian's email for me outlining that in my book because I had it ready to write like it was already there. Um, I was literally going to call the, the second book that I was going to write the difference between being a victim and playing one, you know, a step-by-step guide to overcoming uh, the internal workings of a traumatic mind, right? And then what happened to me after the email was no. No, this is a complete book. Yeah. And so it happened in phases and I'm super excited because I do. There's a there's a number of exercises that I've learned through practicing therapy that I've learned in transformational workshops that I've learned from studying spiritual teachers. Like there's a number of exercises where I will show anyone 
how to overcome that mindset and get to the place that I'm at today that I know that you're at today, which is like, this happened for me. Like every single thing in my past, every dark spot in my past is the bright light of tomorrow for me. Mm. It really is. There's nothing. Like when I look at like the work that I do in business, there's nothing that can get thrown at me and stop me. Yeah, that's for sure. You've already been through that. So, you know, let people throw their worst at you. You're good. Yeah, there's nothing. It's built me, you know, it's, I'm so grateful for everything. I'm grateful. You know, I love my biological parents to death. You know, I know for a fact they did the best that they could with what they have. And what they gave me was life. And they taught me a lot about parenting. Interesting. They taught me so much about parenting. You got to see firsthand the impact of what they did and didn't do. And to understand, like, you know, a lot of kids who don't go through things may not even stop to think about why they're happy or, you know, appreciate what's done. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying people are entitled or or everyone goes through that, but it's like you said early on, like the broken toys, the clothes that didn't fit, you didn't necessarily know any different. So it's like, you know, if, if you just have everything good and, and your life's just kind of fine, that's great. But have you stopped to appreciate it? Have you stopped to recognize why? And sometimes you, you may need to see the other side of it to appreciate what you should be doing and what the good is. I mean, it comes down to empathy, right? It comes down to, to really placing yourself in another person's shoes. And it's a process that I outline, you know, one of the exercises in my book is, you know, is a, is a meta meditation, right? Which I know you're familiar with Brian, which is a loving kindness. Like you, you really, you, you look at an individual or you look at a situation from a new light. If you want to over, if you want to outgrow or overcome your current mindset, you need to be willing to look at it from a different perspective. Yeah. You're not going to grow out of your thought patterns by looking at it through your current thought patterns. Yeah. They haven't gotten you anywhere else. So why would they suddenly start doing that? And so I'll share this with any of any of your listeners that that are seeking that are that are, you know, if they're listening to this, they're seeking, you know, if they're listening to your if they're listening to your podcast, they're they're seeking. Because I know you and I know like I know who you are and the in the message that you carry. So I would say this. It the the number one flag for me in life is if I'm defending something. So if Brian says something to me right now and I go, whoa, 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 but yeah, but yeah, but's the number one defender, like counter, right? Yeah, but, or, well, if I'm defending, I need to, I don't need to, I pause and take a look at what I'm defending because the truth doesn't need to be defended. So if I'm defending something, there's something there that I'm trying to harbor, that I'm trying to block. And I'm, you know, in 2007, when I devoted my life to this path, like I just decided that I was going to stop defending and take a look, put it under a microscope, see if there's something there. Wow. I, there's a lot of, of really powerful stuff that you've shared so far. I think that's the one that's hitting me the most because I think I've always been a fairly defensive person and I always feel like I have truth and right on my side, yet I 
like work tirelessly to try to defend that and it never seems to work out you just uh you just stuck me with something i i absolutely need to start reflecting on and pull in actively into each present day that's really powerful because i feel like i'm defending i'm defending i'm defending and i'm speaking the truth and no one seems to care no one seems to listen well why is that because if it really was the truth or the truth as they understand it i wouldn't need to defend it so something else is going on totally and what and i and i'm not saying this to you brian but for myself three quarters if not all of the defenses of it, that i generate in my mind are based off of what i think other people are going to think about me mm. and and what they're going to think about my past or what they're going to think about my future what they're going to think if i do this what are they going to think if i relaunch my podcast like what are they going to think when i hit that stage like what are they going to think what are they going to think what are they going to think and if i can step away from that and really place myself in the in my own mind right yeah. which is their mind work all like it's Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. Like people are consumed with themselves. So I'm spending all of my time basing my actions off of what I believe other people are going to think about me. Yeah. And they're spending all of their time thinking about what I'm going to think about them. And like, we just spend this. <laughs> it's so, it just, yeah. so that place always makes me chuckle yeah. Because I'm thinking about what they're going to think and they're thinking about what I'm going to think. And like, we're just sitting there thinking and no one's taking any real tangible actions to change the world. Cause we're just thinking. Yeah. It's a waste. <laughs> well said. I wish your listeners could have heard, could have saw that face. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's such a, like we do it with big stuff. We do it with little stuff. Like I remember, uh, my father and I, we ended up driving for three hours to go skiing on a like miserable rainy day. Neither of us wanted to go. And after like three hours being totally soaked and just like it, it sucked. And, you know, it wasn't even like, oh, well, at least, you know, we're having good bonding time because we were like cold and uncomfortable and unhappy. And so we basically just didn't speak. So it's like three hours of misery. And then I think we both kind of I mean, it was almost like a, a sitcom. Like we both said at the same time, like, do you want to go? And it was like, you know, an hour into driving home. So like six hours of driving for three hours of skiing that that sucked. We we're both like, I really actually didn't want to go. It's like, oh, I didn't either. But I thought you did. Oh, I thought you did. And it's like, we're just caught up in like, well, I don't want to disappoint him. Or, I, you know, he like, we were both thinking the exact same thing. Neither of us was willing to say it. And if we had just actually focused on what we wanted and shared that, we would have been in a better place. And it's like totally different realm of, of stuff that we're talking about. But that's kind of the point is like it happens in everything. This isn't just about serious stuff or about judgment or whatever. It's like, you know, even the most basic things, we all get caught up in it. Yeah. And I'll, sh and I'll share that. I'll share this as an example, right? So I'm, I've been engaged in this practice for a while. I'm not going to name drop, but I was at, I was at a, 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 a I guess a, a big deal transformational workshop this last weekend and I was assisting, which means I was, I was crewing, I was volunteering for this person and, you know, there's 12,000 people there and, you know, it was fun. I had a blast and, um, I got approached by one of the staff members there and they said, Hey Mark, uh, we heard that you're really good at sales. Um, and I was like, okay, yeah, I appreciate that. I've been told that as well. Um, I don't do sales though. I just help people find what they need to better their lives. Yeah. Whatever I said, whatever salesy pitch I said, right? <laughs> and uh, and so she goes, yeah, well, uh, that's awesome. Uh, we're, we need you to go to the product booth. 
I was like, okay, well, I said, and I had already made a decision that I wasn't doing this before I even showed up. And I, so I said, okay, so who am I meeting with? And she goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, who am I meeting with to, to discuss the terms of this agreement? She goes, well, what are you talking about? And I was like, what's my commission? She was like, you don't get a commission, you're crewing. And I said, well, I don't, uh, I don't sell for blank while I'm volunteering for him. Yeah. She goes, well, what do you mean? You're, you're volunteering. I'm like, yes. But there's a difference between volunteering and a, and a task that somebody should be getting paid for. And if I start selling products for said person, I should be getting paid for that. And you know that, and I know that, yeah. and we'll just end this conversation. And I was super polite about it. But I had already made the decision that I wasn't going to do that, that it was going to be a moment in which I was going to advocate for myself. So that would be my challenge to your listeners is just pick a moment that you're going to advocate for yourself, that you're going to stand up no matter what you believe other people think. And it's going to, you're going to be blown away because like Brian just shared, like they probably don't even want to go skiing. But we never have those conversations because we're so worried about what other people are going to think. Do you want to do this? Like I've had, you know, I've had a uh, couple of people recently that, that have asked me uh, to go on their podcast. Um, no, no, no. I, I, I just don't, I don't believe that your, your podcast fits my message. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? It's a great, you're, you're going to get, you know, I get this many downloads a month. And I was like, yeah, man, but I, I just, that, like that's my, awesome, but it has nothing to do yeah, with what I do. Yeah. Your gut, your gut is going to guide you. Your intuition is going to guide you. And it's been guiding you for years. Just most people never listen to it. Yeah. Well, that's a really good point. It, it's hard to do. Um, so hard. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it gets easier once you do it. And obviously you can do it in a nice way. You can do it in a professional, respectful way. You don't have to be like, I think your podcast is crap and I don't want anything to do with it and it's going to hurt my image. It's like, no, you know, great job what you're doing. I, 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 you know, whether you like their show or not, you certainly share that if you do. But um, I, I think it just doesn't really fit with my message. But thanks so much. I'm really flattered, but I'm going to have to pass. And you leave it at that. And like, if they press, that's also kind of like, it's probably even less of a fit now because you're talking about like, you know, it depends what your message is, but if your message is from a place of values and someone's pressing you to be on their show when you just said it's incongruous with your values and that like, that's even more of a sign that you made the right call. But you got to advocate for yourself. I get it with people pitching to be guests. Um, you know, they're great people. They've got great messages, really useful stuff. That's awesome. Uh, more power to them, but it doesn't necessarily mean it fits with the purpose of this show. You know, like, what taught them the lessons and what, like you, you're the absolute perfect embodiment of what I'm trying to have in this show. I want people to listen to someone who's been through something and something can be, you know, that's a broad term. It can be anything, but something that was real and taught you a lesson. And that's why you're here talking about this better place. Not that like, I've got five secrets to making, you know, closing leads or, or whatever, because I'm good at business. Well, that's awesome. I'm really happy for you. That's not what this show's about. You know, like that has nothing to, well, you know, it's cause I struggled in business. So I learned it's like struggling in business is not, that's not what I'm talking about. I will give one secret for closing sales on your show. Okay. Caleb care, like really, really, truly care about the person that you're talking to. 
it's a number one secret. Like yeah. genuinely care, genuinely get into their world and you're going to sell any product that you want to. So it's the word genuine like that. That's the ticket there. And that's and and selling doesn't just have to be a product. You know, it's like ultimately it's about that connection. And so if it's, you know, if you want to build a relationship with them or whatever it is, you can use the word selling to describe what you're doing that, you know, that may feel out of place in a lot of context, but it's the genuine side. I wrote about a guy who was trained in a very old school kind of sales. And every time he'd call on me when I was in my last job, I'd have to go through the five or 10 minute spiel that like he was taught, you know, ask about the family, ask about this, make a comment about that, go check him out on whatever social media and notice something and then be like, oh, I saw your son did whatever. And I'm like, you actually, you don't know me. This is just creepy. You're just going through the motions. This is totally disingenuous. You know, like I'd met the guy for 15 minutes once. Why are you asking about my wife? You know, like it's, it's not genuine at all. And that, I, I think it's the genuine piece. Like he cared, but it wasn't genuine, you know? That's Absolutely. A huge difference. Huge um, difference. All right. Maybe because we're, we're totally off track. That's a sign that we should wrap it up for this yes. time but there dude there's so much more and and i know i mean you and i will continue to interact so i think we'll have those sparks of what else we should be talking about um so i'm preemptively inviting you to come back on and uh yeah I, I, man this is this has just been amazing like you continue to blow me away your story uh and how you've lived it it's it's unreal and i know there are people like it doesn't just have to be adoption or uh you know what you went through as a kid or the addiction issues or incarceration like any one of those things or none of those things can be where someone else is at but there is some serious underlying self-respect self-love um victim playing kind of stuff that you're talking about that a lot of us go through regardless of what our exact trauma or exact story is the way that you face that learned about it and the tools you built to deal with it that's where the message is and i i'm sure there are next to no listeners right now who aren't feeling some resonance with this um and i know you gave a bunch of your story but there's so much more to it and especially with the next release of the book and the tools this because we didn't get into a lot of the specifics of it so i can't advocate enough for people to pick up the book you will not be able to put it down nor should you so just like block off part of your life and just make it happen it's amazing um, part of your life the, the the first one wasn't that i mean if you want a copy um of the first one you guys could shoot me an email and i could get you sent one over um, but yeah, if you want to wait for the second one, the second one is the complete story. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about, as you were talking about how you're planning to release it, I was like, well, you could do that. You could have a, like, you know, here's the story and separately here are the tools and you could have it be two different books and that's fine. And you still can do that. You can have one that's just, you know, like, here's how you can stop playing the victim or, you know, whatever better, better title you, you have than, uh, the bad one I just came up with. But, um, there is absolutely something to be said for the two coming together because getting that backstory and understanding why you're able to talk about that, I think just amplifies the power and the, for me, it's like the proof that no, this is real. This isn't just someone who's like studied it and he's got some, you know, some things he put together from the internet or some other books that he's calling his own now. Um, 
I, I, I totally get why it's got to be one piece. I get that way more powerful. Awesome, Brian. Well, I'm so grateful that you had me on your show and, uh, and I look forward to continuing to get to know you. Yeah. Um, we are never going to be free of each other. That's for sure. No, even if it means skiing in the rain, Mark, I'll tell you now. Yeah. (laughs) I'll, I'll say no. So I'm too old for that crap now. Um, all right. Awesome. You, uh, you want to help me close things out? Absolutely. All right. Today is a new day. Go out and do it. That's it, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. I'm so grateful to be on your show and to know you. I'll talk to you soon. Same here. Wow. See, I told you that is some heavy, serious stuff. And it's also not even the whole picture. Like we, I keep saying it, we got to come back. We got to have another follow-up interview with Mark. I really want to focus that one on the path after the story, which he touched on, but there's, there's some really deep learning that he's been through that he shares with others, um, that I know will benefit everybody. So you should probably go to Mark's website. And by probably, I mean, definitely you should go to markcrandall.net. Um, you can get access to his book there or books because there's probably going to be, well, he does have more than one, but there'll probably be the updated version of his really deep, uh, you know, his, his story. I'm sorry. I'm kind of, again, I'm lost for words. Um, it, this is this is some serious stuff. Now I'm recording this outro, this uh, this closure, a couple weeks or like a week after Mark and I did the interview. And I'll tell you the thing that is really sticking with me, uh, and maybe it's because I've heard a lot of the other pieces of inspiration for him, but this one that has gotten me to really look at myself is when he says, "The truth doesn't need defending." That struck me at my core. Why am I defensive? What am I defending? And could I do things differently if I wasn't being so defensive? Like, what does that signal to me? Is what I'm thinking and feeling not true? Is that why I'm being defensive? Or am I engaging in some sort of conflict that I don't need to engage in because the truth doesn't need it? Either way, huge red flag to me that I'm watching for now. When I get defensive, it's like lights are going off. That's a signal. So that's just one of the many things that Mark sparked in this interview. So I'm glad you stuck with it. Powerful, powerful stuff. Check out more about Mark. You can listen to my interview on his podcast, Purpose Chasers, as well. Uh, that's the first time we really got super deep with stuff. And, and, of course, if this is resonating and you want more, you can also check out Do A Day, doadaybook.com, and check out my blog at brianfelchuk.com slash blog. If you haven't yet reviewed this podcast, I hope that this episode shows you just how important this show can be. So review it, share it, subscribe. These are the things that help the show grow. So head over to iTunes, find the show, and just give it a review. It would mean the world to me, and it would help the show get discovered by people who need to hear stories like Mark's. All right, with that, I'm going to say today is a new day because... You've gotten some inspiration. You need to use it and go out and do it. Thanks, everybody.